As treasurer of the Royal Irish Academy, I'm delighted to welcome you all to this launch event for our new book, Irish Lives in America, edited by Liz Evers and Neave Gallagher. It's another landmark volume in, in a flow that has made the past number of years actually a kind of golden age of publication for the Academy in its almost quarter millennium of existence. Today, it being February, Fiara, we're celebrating 300 years of Irish women in America at this event. Well, the book has more than women. It does have some Irish American men in the book as well, I'm sorry to tell you. Uh, many of them actually hitherto unknown to me and revealing so many unexpected connections between Ireland, America, and within the Irish Americans of different strands and brands. One example that I noticed, Alexander Brown, he migrated in 1800. He caught my eye. I suppose it's, it's a professional deformation because his children founded the famous banking firm known as Brown Brothers Harriman, one of whose bosses in later years was Prescott Bush, father and grandfather of U.S. presidents. Just one of the many hidden and unlikely connections. Who knew? But enough about men. Today is about Irish-American women, from Bridget's to business magnets. And to moderate the event, we have none other than the Irish ambassador to the United States, Dan Mulhall. Now, among his many other achievements, Dan has had the luck, or unerring skill, I don't know which, to be appointed to the most vital diplomatic missions at the most interesting times. Ambassador to Germany during the financial crisis, and to Britain during the Brexit debates and referendum, and now Washington. Dan, take it away. Thank you very much, Patrick. Um, it's uh, good to see you in this uh, new capacity of yours. Um, no better person to look after the, uh, the funds of the, uh, of the Academy, uh, seeing as you also looked after um, Ireland's um, fortunes uh, as well during a very difficult time in our economic history when it was my privilege to work with you during my time in Germany and again uh, in a different capacity when I was in London. So great to see you again and great to be with Liz and um, Niamh on this occasion as we um, discuss this book. Now, I have been a devotee of Irish America since my arrival here uh, four and a half years ago. Because I'd never served in America before coming as ambassador in August 2017, I had listened to various suggestions from people, and many of them led me to conclude that perhaps Irish America was a waning resource, that it was a, it was a thing of you know, greatness in the past, but that its present wasn't quite so spectacular and its future was maybe a little questionable. I've had a, it's been a revelation to me really to travel all over this country and to come across Irish Americans, not just in the, the normal strongholds of Irish America in New York, Boston, Chicago, but in places as far afield as Savannah and San Antonio, and Charleston and the West Coast and Oregon and Washington State and to discover, and then more recently in, in Montana, to discover that all over America, you have this rich history of the Irish contribution to the creation of modern America. 
And that's why I was so enthusiastic when uh, I was asked to um, contribute a foreword to this book. And when I discovered that they were going to bring out a collection of books that would highlight the Irish contribution to the United States. And when I looked at the selection of lives that have been chosen by the editors, uh, Niamh and Liz, it brought home to me that Irish America is not just um, diverse in terms of its geographical spread. It's also diverse in terms of its historical um, horizon from the very earliest days of um, European settlement in America to uh, the present day. And also that, of course, the Irish have, have touched every walk of American life uh, very strongly. And that's what this book really brings out. And that's why I think it's an important publication, an important contribution to the understanding of, um, of, Irish, of Irish America and of the Irish contribution to the United States. But I'd like to, I'm always interested in the, the lesser known stories. So, you know, I mean, in other words, I, I focused here in reading this book and in, and in my foreword, focused on, on, you know, those, those sort of forgotten stories, the ones that have not attracted the kind of attention. Um, you know, we, we all know about the, you know, the Irish influence in, in, Boston, you know, the police force and the um, fire service in New York, heavily, you know, we all know about the Irish involvement in politics, you know, the Democratic Party mainly and, and other ways as well. But the thing that intrigued me about this book is that it, that, it, that it brings us back to the very beginning when most Irish people familiar with the story of the Irish in America as a Boston, New York, Chicago phenomenon, um, would not be aware that they were Irish in this country from the very earliest days. And I think the story of Anne Bonny is one that I, I have to start with. And maybe I could ask Niamh to just give us a little bit of a, a 101 update on the extraordinary career of Anne Bonny, who just strikes me as a, as a remarkable figure um, by any stretch of the imagination, but certainly yeah. a great... Irish-American uh, phenomenon uh, in her day. <laughs> well, everybody has heard of Gráinne Whale, um, the famous uh, Irish pirate. And Bonnie, I think she's become more famous. You know, recently there's been graphic novels about her, but she was a pirate. Um, she was born in Kinsale. Well, at least Kinsale have claimed her for themselves anyway. And they painted a large mural of her on their stony steps, about 1700. And her father brought her over to the Carolinas um, when she was young and by hook or crook she seems to have ended up in the Bahamas where she hooked up with a gentleman named Calico Jack uh, who was a pirate and an awful lot of what we get from Anne Bonny comes from the pen of a guy called Captain Charles Johnson which we think was Daniel Defoe uh, using a pseudonym. So he tells us that herself and Mary Reed fought on board the pirate ship, dressed as men, swearing like navvies, uh, using their cutlasses. And uh, the governor of the Bahamas issued um, a writ for their uh, capture, which they did in uh, October of 1720. And the men pirates were tried in November and executed, but the ladies pleaded their bellies, which was uh, well-worn uh, way of worming out of execution in those days and unusually it actually turned out that they both were pregnant and Mary Reed died in prison but Anne Bonny we're not sure what happened to her afterwards 
And the story goes that she was rescued by her wealthy father and she was forced into a respectable marriage and she lived to a good age of 80. But after 1721, there is actually no sign of her. But the two ladies, they tried to claim that they were coerced and that they were forced to be on board the pirate ship. But in actual fact, witnesses said that they fought more savagely than the men and they were the last ones captured. So Anne Bonny was definitely a pirate to her very fingertips, I think we could safely say. It just it, it just brings home to me that we um, that we can celebrate even those who uh, who perhaps uh, didn't acquit themselves gloriously in all respects. So, because it's it's what, what we're talking about here is the, the you know the diversity of the Irish impact in the United yeah. States, just the, the scale of it, and then the diversity of it, the fact that it was in every walk of life, in every corner of the United States, the Irish popped up and didn't always, uh, you know, do all the right things or didn't always behave in a sort of a manner that we might <laughs> admire and want our children to uh, to um, um, to follow their example. But 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 they were part of the fabric of America from the very beginning. I mean, another fascinating story that I just think this is an amazing story, uh, which is the story of Albert Cashier. And I think I'm going to ask Neve to take that on because I did see a reference to it a few years ago. It got a bit of a run uh, in our media at home, uh, probably during the, the one of the centenary uh, events of the our 150th anniversary of the Civil War, mm -hmm. maybe. But anyway, a Civil War soldier. Um, tell us about Albert Cashier, uh, please. Well, we, we, uh, we, when we put Albert in, um, Albert was born female, but Albert lived his life as a man. And so we honoured that by, by always referring to Albert as he. And he was born Jenny Hodgers and um, he travelled across, he was born in Laos and he travelled across. And his is a really very ordinary story in that he joined the Union Army and he fought uh, bravely on the side of the Union. And he lived a very modest life. He became an odd job man and he wore his uniform every every um every year to commemorate veterans day but if he was of course a woman and people will say well how come he wasn't discovered what what is that about but because of the victorian uniforms that they wore they were very shapeless and uh albert is described as being you know short stocky red-haired he had uh he'd had sm uh, smallpox so he had scars you know so he was quite unfeminine and the men used to tease him about never having to shave and he would just, you know, he would laugh it off. But poor Albert, um, I felt terribly sorry for him because I actually wrote uh, his biography and he had an accident in 1911 uh, when a car rolled over his leg and the doctor discovered that Albert was in fact female, but himself and the mayor kept the secret and Albert was sent to the veterans hospital where he was extremely happy but he developed dementia and ended his days in the lunatic asylum, as they called it back then, where he was forced to wear a dress. But his army buddies rallied. And when he died, he was buried in his full Union uniform. And his gravestone reflected the fact that Albert had fought so bravely and uh, what, what his uh, rank had been and his achievements. So Albert, it was a very ordinary life. But also, you know, it was a very unusual life and that he kept the secret the whole time. And there's some some clues as to what Albert would have been like. He liked to babysit for, for children in the, the little town that he settled in of Sanonim. But um, he always maintained his distance is what an awful lot of his colleagues would have said, that, that he kept himself to himself. And of course he did because he didn't want to uncover his secret. So we've, we've talked now about two... Irish people who, if you like, 
two women who um, distinguished themselves, mm. performed in a very male environment. I mean, piracy is not normally associated with women, uh, and nor is you know service in the in the American Civil War. Albert Cashier was probably uh, one of a handful, of, probably, of women who managed to 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 do that um, to, to get into the. Union or uh, Confederate armies uh, during maybe the only one, in fact, I'm not sure. Uh, but but I want to turn now and I want to 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 ask Liz um, about someone else who's kind of extremely well known. I refer to Annie Moore, mm-hmm. but in a way, Annie Moore is a far more representative figure mm-hmm. than either Anne Bonny uh, or um, Albert Cashier, because. Her story, although it's distinguished by the fact that she was the first one to pass through Ellis Island and therefore has been memorialized and, and, and you know, she's a, a kind of a cult has been developed around her. She actually lived a pretty miserable life and probably reflects the experience of a lot of Irish immigrants in the 19th century. Of course, a certain number made it good, but she's an example of someone who really, you know, had a pretty tough life. She had 11 children, I think, and most of them died in infancy and only a few, um, uh, I mean, only a handful managed to reach adulthood. But the other thing about her story is that her descendants are scattered all over the United States and are now occupying positions, you know, well up the, you know, the, the, uh, the social and economic scale from the position at the very bottom that any and her family initially occupied. So do you want to tell us a little more about uh, the story, uh, Liz, of, of any more? Yes, please. Uh, Annie is a very interesting character um, because, as you say, she does represent and she's is a rare opportunity for us to include someone very ordinary in this collection. And she was became famous because of being the first immigrant through Ellis Island. Um, And obviously our source material is a dictionary of Irish biography. People get in there because of some remarkable achievement or they're otherwise notable so there are very few examples of ordinary people in there so it's fantastic to be able to include someone who is representative of that broader sweep of immigrants to Ireland or sorry immigrants from Ireland to America um, because we just don't have records of so many of them we don't have life stories for so many of them they just assimilated into the culture and effectively disappeared from view so Annie Moore, um, as we say, was the first person to pass through the new uh, centre at Ellis Island in uh, January of 1892. And uh, she was, you know, splashed all over the newspapers because it was there was a big fanfare to the opening of the new uh, immigration centre and it really represented, you know, the promise of life in America. Um, you know, under the the Statue of Liberty, watching down on the new immigrants coming in. So she was issued with a a $10 gold coin. She had her photo taken um, and she met all the local dignitaries and big fanfare made. And then off she went on her way. She came over with um, her two younger brothers and she was due to be reunited in in New York with her parents who'd moved over a few years previously. So that was basically the end of Annie Moore's story at the time. And then later she was misrepresented uh, um, in stories that that followed about what her life became. 
And for many years, it was erroneously reported that she headed west to Indiana and then she made her way down to uh, down to Texas, down to Waco in Texas, that she married a relation of Daniel O'Connell and that ultimately she died at the age of 50 as being killed in a streetcar accident. Now, that, that all did happen to a woman called Annie Moore, but it wasn't the Annie Moore who arrived in Ellis Island back in 1892. What happened to her was, as you described, Dan, that she ended up living in the slums of New York. She married another immigrant, a, a fellow from Germany who was a fishmonger. They had 11 children, six of whom died. She had terrible health problems, living in abject poverty. And she did herself die at the age of 50 and she was buried in an unmarked grave. So for years, we had this alternate story of Annie Moore um, that was a little bit more glamorous than the reality. And it's it's interesting in that how the the kind of the the alternate story was really embraced by people. And, and even the descendants of that lady was was attended commemorative events about Annie Moore. And there was statues commissioned in the in the 90s to celebrate the centenary of her arrival. And the real Annie Moore story was was hidden from view until some genealogists uncovered the truth in the noughties. And yeah, it's 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 quite a, a bittersweet story. Then ultimately, when she was discovered who she was, there was a gravestone um, was put, a beautiful Celtic cross gravestone was erected on her grave and, you know, her story finally came to light. So that's a, a happy conclusion to a fairly miserable life, but so, she is definitely representative of that broader sweep of, of Irish immigrants. So in death, she's kind of been been sort of celebrated and lionised, uh, yeah. but actually her life was a, was a pretty miserable uh, life, I would say. But then, of course, you have to think that she managed to create a kind of a, a legacy here in the form of her many descendants who, who have achieved success in different walks of life. I want to switch um, from New York, where Annie Moore spent her American life, to the West Coast, because um, I've, st I've started reading recently about the Irish on the West Coast. I, I visited Montana there a little while ago and I was also in San Francisco and, and I met some of the Irish there and I started to, 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 to think about it. And I've also been in, been in, um, I, I met all the Irish uh, over in, um, in, in Seattle and the story of, of, um, of Brenda, oh, sorry, Belinda Mulrooney is a fascinating one uh, because, you know, when I asked the question, well, how come Seattle has, Microsoft, Amazon, um, Nordstrom, and Starbucks, all headquartered in this kind of, you know, not a huge city, um, far away from most places in America. And the answer was, well, it started because Seattle was the, the kind of center from which the um, gold rush in Klondike was, um, you know, was serviced. And, and here we have an Irish woman uh, from um, uh, Belinda Mulrooney from County Sligo, who was a, a, a major figure in servicing the, the extraordinary um, movement of people that um, the gold rush up in Alaska entailed. And I've been up, I, I visited Alaska during the summer. And, you know, even then I've been to Juneau and places where Belinda Mulrooney uh, operated and even even in summer it, it's it's not exactly it, it's it's pretty it can be chilly there even in summer and I just imagine what it must be like in the depths of winter and uh, for most of the year of course uh, it, it's snowbound and so forth so it's an extraordinary story um 
Liz, do you want to say a few words about Belinda Mulrooney and the significance of her story? Because, of course, she connects then with the, the fact that today's Ireland and its connection with the United States is is driven a lot by economic and, and commercial links, by the investment of Irish companies in the United States, by the huge American investment in Ireland, and by the $150 billion in trade that crosses the, uh, the Atlantic between the United States and Ireland every year, bringing great benefit to both of our peoples and both of our societies. But Belinda Mulroney is kind of in a way, sort of the start of that, if you like, an Irish woman who was, who was involved in the business community in America at a very early age, at a very early stage in the history of the Western part of the United States. I'll defer to Neve because she is a huge Belinda Mulrooney fan. Very good. Good. I, I actually am. Um, yeah. My colleague uh, wrote wrote uh, Belinda, and I envied him the whole time he was writing her. He was just it was it was when we were back in the office, and he was sitting chuckling uh, for days about Belinda. I mean, we talked about Anne Bonny being a man, uh, a woman in a man's world, and Albert Cashier. Belinda actually ruled. The man's world. I mean, that's what she did. And as you say, she started in Sligo. Um, and I like to think that she was strong willed rather than troublesome from the start. She uh, was kicked out of school in Sligo for fighting with the teacher. And then when she went over to join her parents in Pennsylvania, she uh, fought in the schoolyard with the children there too because of her Sligo accent. Um, so she, she knew her mind. Her father was a coal miner. And Belinda refused to pursue any feminine um, pursuits at all. She left home at 17. She went down to Chicago and she hired out land uh, to a Ferris wheel for the World Fair. She then took the steamboat, was a stewardess on the steamboat to Alaska, and they discovered that she was running a sideline in luxuries. She was getting off at the ports and she was selling luxuries uh, to the ports in Alaska. Um, and then she made the 600 mile journey up to Dawson City in the Klondike, which is extraordinary. She packed up horses and she climbed 20 times over 3000 feet. So, I mean, she was a determined woman and she didn't bring foodstuffs and, um, you know, other sort of basics that you might think. She brought hot water bottles and silk undergarments so that the, uh, the gold miners who were, you know, making out like bandits could buy luxuries for the ladies in their lives. And she opened up hostels and then she opened up a hotel and she was wonderful. She she would um, get paid in gold dust and uh, she had her scales weighted so that the gold dust was always weighted in her favour. And she would have the floor of the, the bar swept every evening and she would make maybe a hundred dollars uh, in sweepings just from the gold dust that fell off of the miners. Um, and at one stage she had over, she was worth over a million and was the richest woman in the Klondike and even established her own um, bank. But um, she uh, married Count Carboneau, who was um, uh, posing as a count, and he defrauded her. Uh, and uh, she built herself a mansion and she moved her parents in down in Washington. But polite society didn't like Belinda because she put her feet up on the table and she drank whiskey and she smoked cigars and she swore. And uh, her family and uh, embezzlement and the money just drifted away. And she ended up cleaning steel welders in Seattle, uh, in the shipyards of Seattle, which she loved so much so that she actually went to after the war, she went to work in a shipyard uh, cleaning the steel welders. And when she went to the nursing home in at a goodly age, uh, she was still as sharp as a tack 
and people would come and chat to her about her amazing, amazing life, you know, absolutely extraordinary. So she only died in 1967, which to me is, you know, incredible that somebody lived through all this gold rush up in the Klondike and had this rich and exotic life and, you know, died within living memory. It's amazing. Yeah. Well, that, 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 is a, uh, that is a fantastic story. And I'm glad that I gave you a chance to tell it because you tell it very well. And it's, uh, it is a fantastic story. I, 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 I has there been a biography written of Belinda? Do you know Belinda? Uh, I'm not sure there has. I wasn't there the Klondike uh, TV program, though. And I think uh, and she featured in that, didn't she? I think she uh, did. Uh, yeah. So, uh, anyway, yeah. Um, Liz, I know that you're going to be uh, able to help us on this one because you wrote one of the uh, one of the two um, um, biographies I'm going to ask you about. But it's a very appropriate, it seems to me, discussing this because we're now in Oscar season and with uh, Irish uh, actresses doing so well, uh, Jesse Buckley having been nominated uh, for an Oscar, uh, Katrina Balfe having starred or didn't, uh, you know, performed extremely well in, in Belfast. Uh, and then you have Saoirse Ronan and Ruth Negan and, and many others. So I, I'm going to ask you, but before I do, I'm going to say that to the audience, if any of you have a, have a question that you want to put to any of the panelists, um, please put it in the Q&A and I'll try and get around to as many of the questions as I can. So I'm going to ask you about, you know, two sort of Irish women who really had a, a major careers uh, on the, um, you know, the Hollywood um, screens, um, Geraldine Fitzgerald and uh, Maureen O'Hara. Could you just tell us about how those two Irish women managed to make this huge breakthrough to become, you know, among the most iconic actresses of their generation? Absolutely. Yeah. Maureen O'Hara never won an Oscar. She was, <laughs> um, which she wasn't very pleased about, it has to be said. She felt robbed at various points in her career, but she was eventually given an honorary Oscar at the tender age of 94. So she really had to wait. She had to hang on in there to get her recognition. And then she died the following year. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so she, the, the two ladies, so Maureen O'Hara and uh, Geraldine Fitzgerald, have kind of a lot of similarities in a way in terms of where they came from. They're both um, from fairly well-to-do families from the south side of Dublin, very close in age. Um, Geraldine Fitzgerald was just a few years older um, than Maureen O'Hara, and uh, who was also a Fitz. She was a Fitzsimon, so even the names are similar, both good Norman names. Um, but Maureen O'Hara started her career um, working at, uh, at the age of 14. She joined the Abbey. And she was then discovered at the age of 17. So really before she got to perform on stage properly, she was just doing bit parts and basically sweeping up behind the sets. Um, so she didn't really get her turn on the board. She was straight into the movies. Uh, Geraldine Fitzgerald had a little bit more of an illustrious career. She didn't um, move over to the States. So she was in her mid 20s and then she went to New York and she performed on stage and one of her first roles was in Heartbreak House with Orson Welles. So that was a great start to her career. Um, Maureen's first was in, it was a bit part in a, in a bit of a tacky little musical called My Irish Molly, which she did then manage to, uh, to get land a couple of great roles, Maureen O'Hara, um, in her early career. Her first film was Jamaica in fabulous film directed by um, Alfred Hitchcock and starring alongside Charles Lawton. And then she was in The Hunchback in Notre Dame, of course, as, as Merelda. 
But then, unfortunately, things kind of went downhill um, when she got uh, her contract then was sold uh, to RKO and she ended up doing a succession of kind of mediocre pictures. And she was very much there because of her her beauty. And uh, she really felt deprived for a long time that that she didn't have access to the same kind of quality of of roles as other actresses who came in via the theatre. And Geraldine Fitzgerald was one of those actresses. Now, Geraldine Fitzgerald didn't fare very well in Hollywood either because she was... um, she didn't have the best opinion of Hollywood. And when she did eventually go make segue from the stage in New York into Hollywood, she made sure she went into Warner Brothers and she made sure that she had a contract that basically let her off for six months of the year so she could continue performing on stage. So she was very canny about that, but she did end up being punished by Warner Brothers who cast her in lots of B movies. And eventually she just left Hollywood in the 1950s and moved to New York permanently and very much made the theater her home. Whereas Maureen, obviously her career heights were in the in the 1950s when she did get a few more good roles and particularly in John Ford movies. Um, so she's considered, I know that the, the Irish Times um, a few years ago um, did their, you know, best Irish actors of all times, and they had Maureen as number one. Um, I'm sure she would have been delighted by that, that recognition finally again, you know, because for a lot of her career, she felt that she, she could have had meatier roles. But of course, her legacy is fantastic. And some of the films are just, you know, they're, they're forever in the vernacular of Irish film. Yeah, uh, well, thank you for that. That's yeah, that, that's that's uh, that's great, and and uh, it's great to have so many um, contemporary uh, Irish actors, uh, you know, making names for themselves in on on stage and screen around the world because it'll help to to establish Ireland's uh, you know profile when we have people of that caliber making you know making such success of their careers in in a very competitive environment that is that is the, the stage and screen. Um, I want to talk about someone that really is not at all well-known compared with, say, Moyne O'Hara and Dernie and Fitzgerald, and that is um, Gertrude Bryce Kelly, uh, because that is um, it's an example of someone who, you know, who became uh, a successful surgeon, which was a rarity in those days uh, for a woman to, to manage to become a, uh, a, a surgeon, um, and, but also, Another feature of her life and a feature that you find across the board in Irish America is that although they made very good lives for themselves in America, uh, became successful people, they never forgot the, the land of their birth or their heritage. And so many of these people, uh, you know, continue to be um, very, very strong supporters of Irish independence. Although, you know, you might have expected they might have been you know, drawn away into the kind of the attractions of, of success in America at that time, a, place, a time in the country is America was really booming and, and becoming the, the, the kind of world power that it became after the First World War. And, and yet someone like Gertrude Bryce Kelly was devoted to the cause of Irish independence. Who'd like to take up her story and give us a few further insights into it? I'll, I'll take okay. Gertrude. Um, yeah, she's a fascinating um, person altogether and we don't have a huge amount of information still on her she kind of she was overshadowed uh, for a long time by her brother who was one of the um, innovators of alternating current Uh, so he was a very prestigious scientist as well so 
she moved over to America when she was just 11 years of age. She's originally from Carrick on shore, but they were a very a family that had a lot of emphasis on education and they were also very much a nationalist family. Um, and they settled in New Jersey. So the whole family moved over and she started her career working as a school principal. Um, but then she decided to study medicine and she's obviously incredibly intelligent and driven because she then became a demonstrator in anatomy and then she became a surgeon and she was as you mentioned she was one of the first female surgeons in New York um, but also as well as her her political interests she was very um, very much a, an activist for uh, people who were living in poverty and so she worked in the slums around uh, Newark, New Jersey, New York and she um, you know, went out of her way to help poor patients as well. Um, but yes, she was definitely a political radical, maybe too radical for some people. And she was at one time the president of Common Naman, and she was also involved in the United Irish Women and herself and uh, Muriel McSweeney. And they tried to actually take over the Irish consulate in New York at one stage as a well, protest. I that kind of thing at all now. That would be, yeah. that would be very bad. <laughs> That'd be a very bad idea. I don't want anyone following that kind of uh, um, example, hey? <laughs> well, that's it. But they were protesting against the uh, the free so state. They were. they were, yeah. And that was 1923. So they were very much on the anti-treaty side. Of course, of course, right. Yeah. Well, look, that's that's fascinating. Um, I want to move on to two other um, women who feature this book. And I'm talking about um, Mother Jones and Margaret Hawley. Now, I have connected with both of those uh, women's legacy during my time here in the United States, because my first time visiting New Orleans, my first year in the United States, I, together with our honorary consul there, uh, Judge Jim McKay, I visited the memorial to Mar uh, Margaret Horry that's located prominently in um, today's New Orleans, where she's still remembered. Uh, and I, I looked into her, her background and she's an extraordinary um, profile in New Orleans as a, as a, a huge philanthropist, uh, someone who really did, uh, was widely loved and, and highly regarded by the people of New Orleans. And when she died, her funeral was a huge event. And they built this very impressive memorial to her. Not many 19th century women had, had um, uh, memorials devoted to their memory. And then of course, Mother Jones, I visited Mother Jones's grave in Southern Illinois uh, together with our, um, uh, together with a colleague of mine. And the great thing about, the amazing thing about Mother Jones's um, uh, memorial, or, 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 or her tomb, her grave, is the scale of it. It's absolutely massive scale. And it was built during the Great Depression. So the miners that she spent her life serving gathered the money gathered funds during the Great Depression when everyone was on their uppers and built this extraordinary memorial to Mother Jones, thereby highlighting her importance and the way she was venerated. And even today, uh, there's a plan now to erect a memorial in Chicago to Mother Jones. But the thing that unites Margaret Horry and Mother Jones is that both of them married, had children, and lost their husbands and their children in an epidemic of yellow fever. So we may think we're, we're in trouble um, uh, battling the coronavirus. And of course, we, we have had a terrible time over the last few years, but, but think about this, uh, you know, a woman like Mother Jones and Margaret Horry losing their entire family in an epidemic that swept through 
the places where they were living at that time. And that was something that happened to so many uh, people in the 19th century. So who'd like to take up the the, uh, the stories of these two women? Yes, Neve. I will, yeah. Um, I mean, Margaret and Mother Jones, they, they're two ex- uh, women who had revolu- revolutionised where they lived and uh, their social circumstances, but very, very different. I mean, Margaret had a terribly sad life and it's one that could have crushed her. As you say, the yellow fever, it took her parents um, and left her orphaned at the age of nine. And she was illiterate um, and she had to work as a domestic. And then when she married, um, she, her husband and her infant daughter uh, both died as well. So she was left destitute. She was illiterate and she went to live with the Sisters of Charity working in their orphanage. Um, and who would have suspected that she'd be such an entrepreneur? She borrowed from the local parish priest. She borrowed money to buy two cows and she used the milk to feed the orphans and sold the surplus and ended up with a dairy of over 40 cows, which she then sold and bought a bakery, which ran over four floors and uh, employed 40 people at one stage. And New Orleans, as you say, her funeral was enormous. There was, um, you know, all the local dignitaries carried her, her coffin and uh, the no- local newspapers were edged with black uh, to signify the sorrow. And you said about the statue, it's the first statue publicly erected of a woman in the States, I think it is, the first statue of a female philanthropist and the only known statue of a baker <laughs> is how it goes. <laughs> um, Mother Jones, on the other hand, as you say, again, very sad. Her, her husband and her four children were carried off with the yellow fever in 1867. Um, but again, instead of being bloodied and bowed by, by her sorrow, she turned it into impassioned, you know, um, uh, working for, for others and um, became totally um, tied up with defiant mass action, the United Mine Workers of America, um, children's crusades, 90 mile marches into Washington. I mean, you know, she was a, a, an older lady when she was arrested for the first time and she was in prison several times at one stage for a stretch of nine weeks without trial for her, for her part in a strike. So, you know, these two women, they, um, they both very different uh, in their approach to life, but both equally influential in how they affected the communities around them, you know. So I love reading about the two of them. And somebody I was talking to the other day didn't realise that Mother Jones was actually uh, from Cork. So I said, those Cork women, they get everywhere. Um, yeah, I mean, in fact, they, they have an annual event or they had an annual event yeah. uh, devoted to the memory of Mother Jones. And, and yeah. I, I, I've taken part in... in events here um uh celebrating her, her her legacy and in fact we have a we have a a, a painting of mother jones we, we last year we commissioned two paintings one of which hangs in the uh, embassy here and the other hangs at the consulate in, in chicago where she spent part of her life and of course she was also a victim of, of, of the great fire of chicago because yeah, that's right. She set up a business in Chicago, and then the fire uh, destroyed okay. the business. I think that convinced her that business was not, uh, you know, for her, and she decided to devote herself uh, to the interests uh, of the um, of, of the miners that she served so 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 brilliantly during her lifetime. And she was very she was at one stage known as the most dangerous woman in America. Oh, yeah, uh, well, women, I'm telling you, incendiary <laughs> uh, rhetoric and and so forth. Now another another interesting thing I think is is another interesting character is Charlotte Grace O'Brien 
And she was the daughter of the Young Ireland leader, William Smith O'Brien, who was transported to Australia uh, together with Thomas Francis Marr, and they were they were incarcerated, or they were held in, in Tasmania for a number of years, and then both of them ended up moving to America. But and so she's an example of of someone who who uh, you know was the daughter of a prominent uh, political figure, but she herself uh, played a role in um, in looking after the interests of uh, of of Irish immigrant women, and it's an example, you know, the same as two of the Parnell. Parnell sisters were very involved as well. And as you mentioned, Muriel McSweeney, many of the, the uh, relatives of the um, those who fought in the War of Independence and the, and the Civil War and the, and, and the Irish and, and the Easter Rising ended up as activists. And, and Charlotte O'Brien is an example of, of, of that trend in that she, she campaigned for the cause of Irish women on both sides of the Atlantic. Would anybody like to take up uh, her story? Yeah, I'll happily do that. Um, Charlotte Grace O'Brien also has the distinction in this collection of 50 of being the only person in the book who did not emigrate to America. So she lived most of her life in Ireland, but we included her um, because of her work with immigrants and the impact of which is very hard to measure, but I'm sure it was very, very significant. Um, Because obviously post-famine, the number of women emigrating to America shot up. And it was, you know, prior to that, it had it had been a majority men. And then post-famine, you had at least 50% of the people emigrating from Ireland in vast numbers uh, being women. And a lot of them were traveling on their own, not necessarily with their families. Um, and there was just, it, they were they were ripe for exploitation. And so um, Charlotte Grace O'Brien made it her life's work to try and inform and protect these women who were putting themselves potentially in serious danger by leaving home. Uh, even before they left Ireland, they were in danger because they were going to stay in these boarding houses in Cove before getting on their ships. They were awful, grim, overpriced places where everyone was trying to get the little bit of money they had from them. Then the awful conditions on board the ships, then, uh, you know, the conditions that they were going into, the the slums around the the docks, the potential exploitation that was awaiting them when they landed in New York. So she very much um, wanted to make sure that these women knew what they were letting themselves in for and offer them support, particularly pre-departure so she actually opened her own boarding house in Cove and then through that and it was for women and she was able to give advice then to thousands of women as they were making their way over to America so as I say it's hard to measure the impact but hopefully um, it, it, it filtered through then through those people to their connections and just made them a bit more savvy about what they were letting themselves in for because it was such a huge undertaking in the 19th century to get on one of those ships and say goodbye to your family. And I mean, Ireland was unusual in that single women traveled as emigrants uh, across the Atlantic. Most countries that didn't happen, but in, in the Irish case, it did. Mainly they were going to be, to, you know, be reunited with relatives across the Atlantic, but that didn't always work out that well. So you did have a vulnerable population of young Irish women traveling across the Atlantic uh, on, on their own, not accompanied by husbands or, or other family members. I want to come to a final uh, story, which I find intriguing because it connects with today's Irish link with the United States, which a lot of which is in the 
what we call the high tech area of you know IT and medical devices, software, and various other advanced technologies. And I'm, I want to mention, I want to refer here to the career of, of K. McNulty, who was a pioneering uh, computer programmer. Uh, and in fact, she only died in uh, 2006, so she's a relatively recent uh, uh, figure from history. But uh, it's an extraordinary story. And in fact, I know when when the um, when the, um, the you know, Museum of Irish Immigration uh, in uh, Dublin um, um, did a, an exhibition there a, a few years ago, together with the Department of Foreign Affairs, uh, they featured Irish women. And one of the women featured in that was Kay McNulty. And uh, we actually featured her at the embassy and in, in an exhibition that we put on here of the, you know, the Irish American or the women, the Irish women that, that made an impact in America. So who'd like to tell us a little bit more about the career of, of Kay McNulty, establishing that, that um, you know, Irish presence in the high tech world, which is so prevalent today, wherever I go, I meet people in the major uh, IT companies who are Irish and have moved over, having worked with them in Ireland and moved over to San Francisco or to, or, or to Seattle or somewhere else now working for uh, multinational companies here in America. Who'd like to talk about Kay McNulty? Yeah, I'll, I'll take her. Um, I mean, Kay McNulty is a pioneer in, in one of the true senses, you know, um, in that she was at the forefront of computing. And when I was reading up on Kay McNulty, when we were researching for the book, I was outraged on her behalf, really outraged, um, because she was a brilliant mathematician. And in World War II, when there was a shortage of men because they were fighting, um, she, she was um, brought in to work on what was called the ENIAC machine, which is the forerunner um, of computers. And she and these women, they programmed it. They worked on the subroutines they um, each missile trajectory had to be calculated and would take up to 40 hours from an individual woman. And these women worked for 40 hours on a single missile trajectory. And there would have been hundreds of these to work out. And when the machine was was put into place, it was blueprints. It was there was no manuals. So the ladies actually helped to put the manuals in place and design it. And because there was no memory capacity, Kay McNulty was the one who recommended and suggested subroutines so that the machine would have learned behaviors and it wouldn't have to be reprogrammed from fresh every single time. But when the machine was launched in and unveiled to the public in, 18, in 1946, the ladies were reduced to what was reduced to what was called refrigerator dollies. You know, they were sort of, you know, here is the machine looked pretty and stand there while the gentleman took the applause. And even on the 40th anniversary of um, the, the machine being introduced to the public, uh, Kay was the only one who was invited. And it wasn't in her capacity as a scientist. It was because her husband had been one of the engineers working on it. So a really brilliant mathematician. Um, whose role was just foundational in modern computing. And fortunately, her place has been reclaimed, as you say, uh, exhibitions and documentaries. And I'm delighted that, you know, in the 21st century, we can say that actually Kay McNulty from Donegal was one of the foundational um, people there at the birth of computing um, between, you know, um, in, in 1942. So an extraordinary story. Um, no, no it, is, it is a fantastic story, and, and I'm delighted that you've highlighted it in this book because she deserves yeah. every attention that you give yeah. her, and, and more indeed. I, I hope that the more study done of uh, Kim McNulty's career now that she's, she's been brought out of the shadows. Uh, there's a question from uh, Patrick Fitzgibbons. Um, 
uh, a more general question, I suppose, that either of you, uh, both of you can answer maybe, or um, which is what was the criteria for selecting the final 50 individuals? I know that I checked at one stage uh, and there were 450 uh, individuals in the dictionary who were who died in America. So no, uh, not all were Irish born, but but probably most were. So so what was the criteria for selecting the 50 that finally made the cut and uh, appear in this book? I'll take that one. Um, so yeah, the it's the figure is somewhere between four hundred and five hundred people that we had to choose from, because um, just searching for where they had their career in America. So I see someone else asked a question about the Parnell sisters. Now they're not included in this volume, and but they did both obviously have uh, some involvement in a in America. So they would have been potentially considered, though I don't think their careers necessarily were as extensive as the people that we did choose. So we had this vast number to choose from in the Dictionary of Irish Biography. And I suppose, first off, we wanted people to be Ireland-born migrants to America who impacted American culture, society or political life, not necessarily positively, didn't, but just that there, there, there was an impact there uh, to be demonstrated. Um, we wanted a selection that captured a really broad view of Irish America and the different waves of migration that created it. And, and earlier on, we talked about just that span of history that's covered there. So this is about 350 years um, is it all included. Uh, our earliest entry there is, is James Logan, who was the chief advisor to William Penn, founder of Pennsylvania, and he was born in 1674. Um, we also wanted figures uh, who lived lives of, of poverty and hardship, who worked as servants and alongside the Irish-born business titans of industry and, and the people who went on to be the country's first millionaires. So we, as I say, we wanted to be as representative of the kind of Irish migrant experience as we could be, um, given obviously that the, the Dictionary of Irish Biography is skewed toward uh, people who are notable for particular um, achievements. Uh, so when we were able to include some servants and, and sort of ordinary people um, because of like a great example is Margaret Marr, for example, who was a domestic servant whose own life story was fairly uninteresting, except for the fact that she was the servant to the Dickinson family. And she's credited effectively with giving the world Emily Dickinson because she preserved her poetry. And if it hadn't been for the actions of the servant. So um, people like that wouldn't ordinarily make their way into the Dictionary of Irish Biography because their lives wouldn't be recorded. Um, so we, we wanted to have a good representation of the island of Ireland as well. So the people who are featured are from all over the country. I think 20 of the 32 counties are represented. They're Catholics, they're Presbyterians, they're Quakers, they're Methodists, they're people of no religion. Um, and we we really wanted to have a good representation of women. And that was a, a, a very important criteria because um, obviously women are tend to be underrepresented um, because of lack of information uh, generally and just, you know, how history has been written, the patriarchy, etc. <laughs> so um, like within the Dictionary of Irish Biography, I think it's, it's just over 10% um, of the entries are women of, of whatever that is, 10,600 and something entries. So it's, it's relatively small number. Um, and in this book, we have 18 of the 50 entries are women. So that's more like 36%. So that was really important for us to include uh, a lot of, as many women as we could in the selection. 
There's a question here which doesn't really fall into our remit, but let's give it a go anyway. Um, it's a question about John Boyle O'Reilly and about his family. Now, I actually, um, I have a, um, I followed uh, um, the career of John Boyle O'Reilly because uh, my wife is from Perth, Western Australia. And uh, on, a, on a visit there some years ago, I visited Fremantle Prison where John Boyle O'Reilly was held. And um, they now commemorate John Boyle O'Reilly in Western Australia. The Irish there have, have really kind of, um, you know, taken to him and they, they, they celebrate his legacy every year uh, with some events. And I know the former premier of Western Australia was very keen on the, the whole John Boyle O'Reilly um, story. And then, of course, when he came to America, he, he, he ran the Boston Pilot, which actually published uh, work by W.B. Yeats at a time when Yeats probably needed the money. You know, the guinea <laughs> that he got for every column he wrote for John Boyle O'Reilly probably kept him going and enabled him to write the great poems he wrote uh, during the 1880s and 90s and so forth. So um, anyone, um, whether you'd like to say anything about John Boyle O'Reilly, because he probably is one of the more... I mean, he comes from me. There's a there's a there's a center in me as well that commemorates his life there. So he is someone who is who is a genuine, uh, you know, um, high profile figure, unlike some of the people in in this um, collection. Yeah, I actually knew very little about John Boyle O'Reilly. My background is medieval history, so modern Irish and early modern Irish history is a bit of a mystery to me. So when I was reading up on him, I actually thought, what a fantastic man, and. Um, our criteria, as Liz was saying, that they had to be born in Ireland, but also that they had to have a significant uh, influence on America. And the thing about John Boyle O'Reilly is that he was significant in both America and in Ireland. Um, although I was very disappointed when I tweeted about him recently, and most of the comments were that he was on the bottle of wine. <laughs> um, his uh, his um, convict picture is, is on a bottle of wine. And... Um, I can't remember the, the make of the wine, but... Is, I, I, I think it's called 13 Crimes. I think it's an Australian... Um, is that the one? I, yeah. I actually came across it recently. I was fascinated by it. I, I couldn't quite yeah. work out how it happened, but somebody got the idea of, 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 of issuing a, a series of of wines with different sort of uh, images yeah. of, uh, of yeah. both transport. Mind you, my wife will, you know, will tell you, will tell me that uh, you know, in Australia, it's a badge of honor to be descended from somebody who was transported <laughs> to Australia uh, for, you know, it's, it's something that they celebrate now rather than are in any way, um, you know, nervous or reticent about. <laughs> yeah, so somebody has just put up it's 19 crimes. There you go, I guess. It's 19, 19 crimes, okay, fine. There's never a sort of crime, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, look, um, I, I think we're, we're coming towards the end of our hour, but I, I just want to make one more kind of comment, if I may, and that is that one of the highlights of my uh, time here was when I was invited out to Utah, um, not a place with a huge uh, Irish uh, connection, um, but I was invited out to mark the 150th anniversary of the completion of the Transcontinental Railroad. And I discovered I was invited because 10,000 Irish workers labored on that um, railroad um, going from Omaha, Nebraska to Promontory Point in Utah. And then on the other side, the one that came from the West Coast, uh, from Sacramento to Promontory Point, 2,000 Irish worked alongside 10,000 Chinese workers on a very difficult stretch through the Sierra Nevada and so forth. And that made me realize that those 10,000 people, those 12,000 Irish people, we know nothing about them because they left hardly any record behind them. And that's why I think it's, it's so important to, to do what we can. And I, I also visited Leadville 
up in the um, Rocky Mountains, um, about two hours uh, from Denver. But it's the highest town in America, the highest incorporated town in America. It's about 12, 11,000 feet. And I, I was brought to a cemetery there where there were 2,000 Irish miners buried in unmarked graves. And um, through our immigrant support program, we provided the local community in Denver who raised money with funding to build a memorial that would at least record the names of those who died and are buried in unmarked graves. And that's why I think ventures like this, Irish Lives America, the work that the Royal Irish Academy does on the Dictionary of Irish Biography in bringing, recording to mind, of course you can never recall to mind uh, in the individuals who, who draw, uh, who, um, um, with their hands, with the sweat of their brow, um, literally uh, connected America from uh, from east to west. But at least we can we can find we can discover people who we might not might not be household names in Ireland or in America, and we can bring those back uh, to memory. You know, John Mulvaney and um, Marianne Sadler and Margaret Marr and, uh, and these people. So well done to both of you and, and to the Academy for for you know for doing this bit of work. I think, I mean, I'm constantly using the Dictionary of Irish Biography because um, everywhere I go, I, I, I tend to um, go into the, to the online version and uh, put in, you know, the place I'm going to. And, and you can find references to people who were born or, or spent time in, in, in almost every American state or died in every American state. And it's a wonderful resource for understanding uh, more about the Irish diaspora than we would ever be able to understand if it wasn't for the work of the Dictionary of Irish Biography. So thank you very much for that. And thank you all uh, for tuning in for this session. Uh, it's been wonderful. I've enjoyed it immensely. And I hope you have too. Thank you.